you have your copy of God's Word or your ESV scripture journal containing the Gospel of Luke, will you grab that and go with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible this morning. There are stacks of Bibles on the tables in the back of the room. You can take one now or you can take one on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you. Start reading that Bible. See what happens in your life. The text on which today's teaching is based is Luke 19, verses 28 to 40. I'm going to ask you to stand, if you're willing and able, in honor of the reading of God's Word. We stand to show our reverence and our readiness. We, we do indeed believe this is God's Word. And so at the end of the reading, I'm going to say, this is the Word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond, thanks be to God. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. For about four months now, we have been studying the Gospel of Luke. This is the longest series I've done at Faith Church. And in a long series like this, it's very easy to forget what we have learned thus far, where it's very easy to lose sight of the forest as we look week after week at these individual trees. So today I want to do a, a substantial recap of where we've been in this series as we hit this transitional passage in Luke chapter 19. In just a moment I'll help you understand what I mean by transitional passage. So if you're new to Faith Church or if you haven't been with us for this full series, then today we will bring you up to speed. Luke, the writer of this gospel, was the first Christian historian. He was an intelligent and diligent man with access to the best sources, eyewitness testimonies, and he set out to write a reliable account of the ministry of Jesus Christ. At the very beginning of his gospel, he records the events leading up to and then the birth of Jesus. And from the very beginning of this gospel, we know that there's something unique about this child, Jesus. At the scene of his birth, you'll recall in Luke chapter 2, the angel said to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
Notice the three titles used of Jesus. This is the only verse in the New Testament where these three titles are used in the same verse. Jesus is the Savior, He is the Christ, and He is the Lord. By Savior, Luke means that this is the one who has come to deliver God's people from the penalty and the power of sin. Now what about that second term, Christ? I've said to you before, Christ is not Jesus' surname. You might remember, I've said Jesus does not walk into the bar, order his martini, shaken, not stirred, and say the name is Christ, Jesus Christ. It's not a surname. Christ, the word Christos, here in Luke's gospel, means the anointed one, the Messiah. Jesus is the one promised within the pages of the Old Testament. The one who will have a kingdom who will last forever. The great deliverer of God's people, the Messiah. The long-awaited one. And then that brings us to the third title. Jesus is the Savior, the Christ, and he's the Lord, he's the King. He is the supreme ruler over all of creation because it is in fact his creation. This is God in the flesh. God who has come to earth. So after recording the birth of Jesus, Luke then follows Jesus through his childhood and his adolescent years, which we know tantalizingly little about. And then finally to the years of Jesus' earthly ministry from the time he was in his early 30s. From chapter 4 all the way up to where we are today in chapter 19, Luke tells us about Jesus' earthly ministry. And we've seen that during that time, Jesus devoted himself to three tasks. Teaching through sermons and stories or parables, which we've been looking at most recently on Sunday mornings. Healing of various kinds and gathering a community of followers. But what I want you to see today is that each one of these tasks reveals something about King Jesus and his kingdom or his redemptive reign. His teaching ministry explains the ethics of the kingdom. This whole new way of life that Jesus brings. You see, Jesus doesn't just make us and our relationships a little bit better. He makes us new. It's a whole new way of existence that he brings. We could put it like this. Jesus doesn't teach the horse to jump higher and better. He makes the horse a pegasus. A winged creature. It's a whole new way of living. That's what he brings to us in his teaching. Now what about his healing? His healing ministry highlights the hope of the kingdom. If the teaching gives us the ethics of the kingdom, his healing gives us the hope of the kingdom, this power that Jesus unleashes on the world. We've seen Jesus heal people, eliminate disabilities, defeat the forces of darkness, calm storms. You see, when Jesus comes, all sad things will come untrue. This is the power he brings us, the hope of the kingdom. Now, what about the gathering ministry? Well, if the teaching gives us the ethics of the kingdom, and if the healing highlights the hope of the kingdom, the gathering ministry shows us the grace of the kingdom. Jesus came to welcome, to fellowship with people that most of us would dismiss as far too filthy. Jesus came 
to show us that God loves even the most rebellious, even the most revolting among us. In the words we find in Luke 19, he came to seek and to save the lost. But how does he save? How does King Jesus save, redeem us and unleash this great redemptive power into all the world? How does he do it? He dies. He dies. The king dies. Sure, Jesus' teaching was great. Yes, his, his miracles were incredible. But if we don't understand Jesus' death, then we don't understand what Jesus came to do. The primary thing he came to do. This is why the Son of God took on flesh. This is why he came for us. One of the ways we know that the death of Jesus is in fact the main event is by how much time Luke devotes to it in his gospel. Remember I said that the earthly ministry of Jesus lasted about three years in his early 30s? Luke tells us about those three years from chapter 4 all the way up to chapter 19 where we are today in verse 27. So from chapter 4 to chapter 19 verse 27 in these 15 and a half chapters, Luke covers roughly three years of ministry. But today, in this transitional passage, and here's why it is indeed a transitional passage, from chapter 19, verse 28, to the end of the book in chapter 24, these five and a half chapters cover just one week of Jesus' ministry. It's his final week. This is the passage where we transition into the last days of the Lord Jesus and everything that happened within those last days. Jesus enters Jerusalem on the Sunday before Easter Sunday, known now as Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of what has become known as Holy Week or Passion Week, that last week of his life. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem as his reputation has already been building, he comes into Jerusalem in a way that signals, again, that he is someone unique. The way he enters the city, it causes people to recall a prophecy recorded long ago in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Behold, your king is coming. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. See, as he enters the city, these crowds around him, they praise him as the king. They praise Jesus, not Caesar, as the king. And the religious leaders... The Pharisees that have been suspicious of Jesus all along throughout the entire gospel, they're there and they're trying to quiet the crowd, but to no avail. This is a critical moment in Luke's gospel. It's the point of no return. New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger puts it like this. He captures this moment really well. Listen to what he says. It would be hard to overestimate the political and religious volatility incited by Jesus' actions here. Up to this point in Jesus' ministry, he could still have managed to live a long, happy, peaceful life. 
But his actions on this Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, set in motion a series of events that could result only in either his overthrow of the Romans and the current religious establishment or his brutal death. Caesar could allow no rivals. This is the point of no return. I want us to look at this passage, a very famous passage known as the triumphal entry. And in this passage, I want us to notice three themes. Three themes, interestingly, that reemerge here. We saw them earlier in Luke's gospel. We saw each one of them in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus entered the world. Now he enters Jerusalem, moving toward the cross, and the same three themes emerge. You won't fully understand Luke 19 if you don't make this connection. So I want to help you see the three themes in both Luke 2 and in Luke 19. The first one is the king's sovereignty. The king's sovereignty. The word sovereignty means supreme power. Complete control. First, recall that theme as we saw it in Luke 2. Remember the story? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now Luke, I've already told you he was the first Christian historian. He's a good historian. He gives us a chronological marker here. He tells us the birth of Jesus happened at the same time as this decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This had to do with taxation. What is the Caesar doing? He's showing his power. Who could be so powerful as to make every person of the empire move from point A to point B like ants avoiding the boot? Who has such power? Only the Caesar. That's what this decree is all about. But really, really the Caesar is not as powerful as he thinks. His boot, not as big as he thinks. Because who really, who ultimately is behind all of this? It's God. Luke wants us to see this. This decree that goes out from the Caesar, that's what helps move people from point A to point B. And that's what takes Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. Exactly where God wanted them. Hundreds of years before, the prophet Micah prophesied that the great king, the one whose kingdom would have no end, the great king would come from the little town of Bethlehem. So who is really in control here? Not the Caesar. Inadvertently, he's serving another. He's submitting to God. God is sovereign. God is in control of all things as Jesus enters the world. His sovereignty now Look at the same theme in Luke 19. It surfaces here as well. Verse 29. When Jesus drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where, no, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So as Jesus prepares to enter Jerusalem, he says to a few of his disciples, go ahead of me. Notice the control Jesus has here. He knows exactly what's on the horizon. 
He knows exactly what's about to happen. He tells them where to go. Go into the village that's right in front of you. He tells them what to look for. There you will find a colt tied. He knows the condition of the colt. It's one on which no one has ever yet sat. He knows they'll encounter people. He gives them exactly what to say when the people inquire what they're up to. Tell them the Lord has need of it. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is going into the city where he will die. He's on his way to the cross and he's in complete control. Complete control. The cross will not be an accident. This is the intentional self-sacrifice of the sovereign king. Jesus knows exactly what lies ahead. He's in complete control. Now believer, listen to me. From this passage, we can conclude then that when you enter times of suffering, King Jesus remains in complete control. Whatever it is that you're facing in this moment, whatever it is on the horizon for you, Jesus remains in complete control. One of the most difficult teachings of the Bible is that sometimes God allows bad things to happen. Sometimes God allows bad things to happen, but always, hear me, always, He makes the bad bow to Him. From the bad, somehow He brings something good. Somehow, he causes the evil, the bad, to somehow turn out for the good for those who love him, for his people. He makes the bad bow to him. From the soil of sorrow and suffering, God causes beautiful things to grow. The journey to Jerusalem, the cross of Christ, is the ultimate example of this. You must see it. The king is sovereign. That's the first thing. Now the second thing we find, both in Luke 2 and again here in Luke 19, is the king's humility. The king's humility. Let's recap Luke 2 first. And while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Here in the little town of Bethlehem, on the one hand, the most likely place, because Bethlehem was the birthplace of David, and God had made a promise to David that one day one of his descendants would be the greatest king, the king whose kingdom would never end. So on the one hand, Bethlehem is the most likely place for the Savior to be born, but on the other hand, it's the least likely place, because it's Nowheresville. It's the little town of Bethlehem. The Son of God, the King of the world, He's not born in some great city, in some royal palace. He comes to Bethlehem and the manger. <laughs> the manger. You know, when we sing at Christmas time about the manger, we do so with a certain sentimentality. But there was an unmistakable roughness to this event. A manger is, after all, a feeding trough for the animals. Nobody sings away in the feeding trough. But that's exactly what it was. Here among the animals, in the little town of Bethlehem, the Savior of the world, the King of Kings, He comes to show His humility. 
The same theme reemerges here in Luke 19. See for yourself. Verse 35. They, the disciples, they had done exactly what Jesus said. They went and they found the colt and they brought it. They brought the colt to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. So picture what's happening here. Maybe you've Maybe you're somewhat familiar with this passage, the triumphal entry. It's like I said, it's a very famous passage. But maybe you've always kind of wondered, why is it so famous? It seems rather uneventful, right? I mean, Jesus just rides into town. What's the big deal? Let me try to help you see why it's a big deal. First of all, what happens here at the beginning is not unusual at all. The people escort Jesus on his way into the city of Jerusalem. And as his disciples escort him in, a great crowd from the city runs out to meet him. This was not unusual at all. In fact, when a king, any king, entered the city, this is often what happened, especially if that king was returning from war. If he was, if he was returning from a battle, and if the battle had been won, and therefore the king was the bringer of the peace to the people, the people would rush out from the city, and they would applaud, and they would praise him, because the king is the one who brought peace. So this is very, very ordinary. Everything except one detail, that is. There's one thing here that sticks out like a sore thumb. There's one thing that is unlike the others. It's what Jesus is riding. It's what he's riding. See, normally, when the king is coming into the city and the crowd is there applauding, normally the king would be riding a great horse, a war horse. Because after all, he's returning from war. He's the bringer of peace. He needs an animal to fit the occasion, right? But what is Jesus writing? The word that Luke uses, it's the Greek word polos. It can mean a colt, a baby horse, or a little donkey. A little donkey. Not a war horse. Not a great beast. But something that's, well, it's more appropriate for a child. Or a hobbit, maybe. But not a king. Not a king? In modern terms, kings would have been coming into town on a tank. And Jesus shows up on a child's bicycle, trading wheels and all. Why in the world would he do this? In Jesus, majesty and meekness meet. Sovereignty and humility. This is not his royal highness. It's his royal lowness. Jesus comes into the world and into Jerusalem in this way to show us, first of all, what sort of king he is. He's a different sort of king. Not a king who will prioritize himself, but a king who will sacrifice himself for us. Who will give his life for his people. He does bring peace, but not by wielding the sword, by going to the cross. He comes into the world and into Jerusalem secondly, not just to show us that he's a different sort of king, but also to show us how we must come to him. How we must come to him humbly. Do you remember the theme of the great reversal? We've seen it numerous times in this series now. If you go to Jesus thinking yourself a king, thinking that you have everything you need, 
then Jesus will treat you like a beggar. But if you go to Jesus as a beggar, acknowledging your desperate need, then he will treat you like a king. Sovereignty and humility. Majesty and meekness. One final theme that I want you to see in both passages, the king's glory. Back to Luke 2. I want to read both of these passages back to back so you can see the connection I want you to see here. First in Luke 2, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, Luke 19. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So in both passages, we see these two terms, peace and glory. When Jesus comes into the world, what is it that we see? Peace where? On earth. Peace on earth. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, peace in heaven. Later in Luke's gospel, after Jesus has died and been raised, he will say to his disciples, peace to you. Peace on earth, peace in heaven, peace to you. Don't you see? Jesus brings cosmic peace. Peace to the entire universe. Peace that no one else can bring. Much more could be said there, but the, the term I want to focus on is the second one, glory. Peace and glory. Now this one is a bit more involved, so you're going to have to hang with me. Wipe away those, swat away those mental mosquitoes for a minute, okay? Glory. This is an important term. It's in the Bible all the time. We see it all over the place. We sing it. It's in the songs we sing. But it's a somewhat difficult term to comprehend or to define, right? If I asked you right now, what is glory? You would probably find it somewhat difficult to put it into terms. Glory is much more like the word basketball than the word beauty. Excuse me, beauty than the word basketball. Basketball is an easy term to define, right? So what is a basketball? It's this round object. It's made out of leather or rubber. You bounce it. You can toss it to your teammates. You can throw it or shoot it to try to make it go through a hoop. That's why it's called basketball. Pretty simple and straightforward, right? That one's easy. The word beauty, on the other hand. Well, what is that? It's tough to define beauty without using a term related to beauty. What is beauty? Well, it's when someone or something is beautiful, right? It's the same way with glory. What is glory? Well, it's when something is glorious, I guess. But we have to do better than that, lest we miss what the Bible means when it talks about the glory of God or giving glory to God. So here's what we can say. In the Bible, in the New Testament, here in our passage, the word glory is the Greek word doxa, from which we get the word doxology. And the word doxa means something like weighty, heavy, but it's more than a literal heaviness. The closest thing we have in English, I would say, is the word matter. Matter, which can refer to physical substance with some weight 
to it, right? When I got on the scale earlier, I'm the matter. Heavy. Not a thousand pounds, but heavy nonetheless. So it can mean that sort of heavy, but matter can also mean someone or something who's important. If you as a person matter, you have importance, right? When the Bible talks about the glory of God, it means that God's weightiness is His supreme importance. His supreme importance. God is infinitely more important, infinitely more impressive than anything else in the universe, anything else we can imagine, because God is the source of all things. He's the creator of all things. He is the most important one. To glorify God then, or to give glory to God, means to point to God as the one who is most important in my life. Most impressive in my life. It means to praise God for who He truly is. And that's what we see some of the people in the crowd doing as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. They acknowledge that in Jesus we see the glory of God. Jesus has revealed the greatness, the supreme greatness of the God who created this world and who is now acting to redeem it. But did you notice in this passage, not everyone sees Jesus for who he truly is. Not everyone praises, glorifies God. Look at the end of the passage. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. See, the Pharisees don't think this praise is appropriate. You need to put a stop to this, Jesus. This is going to cause a revolt. Who knows what might happen? They've been suspicious of him all along. Rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. Well, there's a deep irony here. There's a deep irony here. Even creation, even creation knows the Creator when He comes. Even the stones will cry out if these people don't. Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and He's saying, guys, even the, even the rocks, the rocks have a better theology than you do. The geology has a better theology than you do. Don't you see? I'm the king. There's a deep irony here. Creation itself, though powerless, lifeless, knows the life-giving God when he comes. There's a great scene. A great scene in that classic book by Kenneth Graham, The Wind in the Willows. When the rat and the mole, they go looking for the baby otter. And on their search, they stumble into the presence of God. And there in the presence of God, these creatures know exactly what to do. Here's the scene. Then suddenly the mole felt a great awe fall upon him, an awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy. But it was an awe that held him, and that without seeing he knew it could only mean that some august presence was very, very near. Rats, he found the breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? 
Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never! And yet, and yet, O oh mole, I am afraid. And then the two animals, crouching to the earth, bowed their heads, and they worshipped. What is Jesus trying to teach us here? He's trying to teach us that even when we don't know what to do, creation itself does. Creation can see who he is. He is the king, coming to give everything for you and for me. Do you see it? Do you see Jesus for who he truly is? As we continue over these next several weeks to journey with him into Jerusalem to the cross, my prayer is that you will come to see him for who he truly is. And that with the crowds on that day and with the choir of creation, you will praise him. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage that reveals so very much about Jesus and what sort of king, what sort of reign he has. We see his power. Demonstrated miraculous power. Power like the world has never seen. And he comes riding an animal. Fitting for a child. Why? To show that he's a different sort of king. King who came to serve us, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, for those of us who are your followers, help us to demonstrate this same humility that you have shown, this same love. And for those who perhaps are here today and they're not yet your followers, Jesus, they're unsure. Or maybe they're more like the Pharisees and they're pretty settled. You're not the real deal. You're not who you say you are. God, I pray that you would work in their hearts. Convince them otherwise. Give them the gift of new life. Work powerfully in our midst, our sovereign King. In Jesus' name I pray.